Welcome to the Weekly Squeak with me, your host, Chris Chinchilla. You could find more about the show at christianchilla.com slash podcast. This is your weekly geeky squeak. I've got a little selection. I have travel. I have technology. Of course, I always have technology. I have history of technology. And I have a little bit of technology culture. And I have an interview with several people from IOS, the IOS project, a new blockchain. And we talk about their smart contract language, what you could do with their blockchain, and uh, actually what first interested me in the whole story, their interactive IDE, browser-based IDE for developing on the platform. Let's get started. Let's begin with some travel stories. First, an article from Mental Floss by Jake Rosson called 15 Behind-the-Scenes Secrets of Airline Pilots. I think airline pilots are always this mysterious kind of force. We wonder if their life is really glamorous. Uh, is it glamorous for pilots of budget airlines, the same as the big 777s or Dreamliners flying for hours? Well, it turns out that, as you may expect, their life is not as glamorous as you may think. Um, a couple of debunked myths in this article, including some of my favorites around uh, when pilots get to fly for free, for example, which um, actually they can, but it's always on standby. So it's pretty difficult to plan a holiday with your family if you have to be on standby. So they generally don't. And actually, it's quite boring up there. <laughs> I think for the most part, a plane does a lot of the work itself. You have to check things. Like when everything is going according to plan, I mean, there's not so much to do. You're not allowed to read. All they can really do is talk to each other. So I guess uh, pilots get very good at small talk and banter, hopefully. Or it would be kind of boring, I guess. You're actually allowed to look around a cockpit if you ask nicely, especially if you're a child or a nervous flyer. I don't know if they'll just let anybody because that might cause a lot of delays. Any other two that I will mention, and you can go and read the rest of the article yourself, around going to the toilet. Going to the toilet is quite difficult as a pilot because it involves a lot of secure doors, which means they often hold it, which is not good for their long-term health. So spare a thought for the pilot. And if you see them emerging from the cockpit, let them get in the toilet first. And the other one is how much passengers tend to overplay bumps on the ride. It's very easy to do. I often think that the slightest bump on a plane makes me on edge. And yet I get a train or a bus and it throws you all over the place and you don't think twice because it's on the ground. But uh, pilots especially are very blasé about it. Next, this was, uh, well, this was news all over, but I'm referring specifically to an article on The Verge from Andrew J. Hawkins um, on France applying an eco-tax to all flights originating from France. This is actually going to be quite a small amount. You will probably barely notice it on your tickets. Uh, and it will hopefully go to supplement alternative forms of travel. And this is something I have been ex trying to do a lot more, getting trains across Europe a lot more. Internally, and to sort of very neighbouring countries, is usually fine. But going long distance, it often is more difficult. I especially like to go east a lot, which is also more difficult, or it's harder to find the connections. Um, I mean, if this was Europe-wide, then you could have more night trains, you could have more fast trains, you could have uh, more comprehensive connected planning mechanisms. And for the sake of a very small percentage of the fare, I think it would be worth it. I think this is inevitable. Um, it's, it's, it's not unsaid, but I think people tend to ignore the impact of air travel on uh, climate change. And as air travel has got cheaper, more people are doing it. And it is quite a big problem. And I guess 
it was only going to last for so long. So it's an interesting step. It's a very French way, <laughs> taxing and regulating. But still, um, I think someone has to make the first move. And I, I think this is almost inevitable. And we may complain, but uh, I think it's going to happen. And it's likely to become something that more and more governments do, actually. And hopefully, let's just see if they reinvest that money appropriately. Next. Now, this one hit me. Well, it hit me in terms of that I was affected, but I wasn't uh, a victim. I I use Zoom on the Mac on a fairly regular basis when I'm at work. I mean, firstly, I've been on a holiday, so I haven't been using Zoom. And secondly, I don't really use video, and this only really affects your video. Although I suppose it could affect your audio, but then it's less of a less of a concern. This was a, a big attack that was widely reported. I think it started in a Medium blog. Well, I'm not 100% sure. This is where my story with it started. A Medium blog from Jonathan uh, Lightshift in InfoSec write-ups, discovering some very dodgy things that Zoom were doing that I still somewhat find hard to understand why they had to do it this way. I feel like there's another way you could do it. But anyway, um, on all operating systems where Zoom exists, which is pretty much all of them, you can get an email link or a link which you click. It opens in a browser, which then directs you to the native application. This seemed fairly innocuous, but apparently the way they were doing this, and I still don't really understand why they had to do it this way, was by putting... A, uh, a process running constantly in the background, a server process that would monitor for these links. And it had a very um, unrelated name, so you probably wouldn't spot it. I mean, I dive into Activity Monitor, the sort of process monitor on my Mac all the time, and I had never noticed it. So it obviously isn't very um, processor impactful, but um, it allowed people to hijack uh, these links pretty much and jump into random meetings with you. Um, which, yeah, I, I guess can have some security issues. Um, some of the organizations I work for are very security conscious. We actually at town halls make sure that everyone in the meeting is supposed to be there and is recognized. Um, so uh, I guess you always have that human level to ensure that people are supposed to be where they are. Um, interestingly, Apple seemed to have moved quicker on this than Zoom. Zoom have been somewhat quiet about uh, what they're going to do about it and why they were taking this approach. Apple just actually installed, ran an update to macOS that uh, was, was a, I think, a seamless update. They occasionally run these updates that you have no choice but to install. They just get installed. Uh, and you have other updates that uh, you have to opt in to install, and usually in the case of very high security, to remove uh, this process for you, <laughs> which is kind of interesting that the, the uh, operating system manufacturer considered this such a big flaw, they didn't want to wait for the software company to fix it. What Zoom will now do remains to be seen, but it's been a developing story this week, and I will put a few links in the accompanying newsletter to this podcast where you can follow through on the story. I'm just sort of referring to this blog post, but I actually have uh, two other links from Lifehacker and from the next web with follow-up to the story. So I advise you to read those if you're a regular user of Zoom and get the best advice. Uh, I mean, I would rather use the application than the browser. Uh, I don't really like doing things in the browser, to be honest with you, for other reasons which are just personal, <laughs> nothing, nothing really particularly grounded. Um, so I'd rather keep using the native application if possible. Um, and we will see if uh, this gets resolved and Zoom sort of start talking and do some apologizing, I guess. Getting back to some more positive tech stories, this is a post from One Zero, another Medium publication by Thomas McMullen. Uh, called from the Mac startup tone to the Skype ring, sound designers discuss the legacy of their creations. This was yeah, pretty much the title says it all, really. Some famous sound designers who 
invented tones that you probably know from common applications, a Mac startup tone, uh, rest in peace. Uh, yes, rest in peace, I think. <laughs> I haven't heard it for a while. I, uh, I think it's gone. Um, it was very well known, but also the Skype ring. Um, I guess the Facebook messenger sound has become a little bit like that. There's a few like this, the old Nokia ringtone, if you're old enough to remember that. Recently, actually, or oh, maybe a little while ago now, maybe nearly a year ago, I saw a very good talk here in Berlin from a sound designer for BMW who firstly has helped design the noises that uh, uh, autonomous cars make. Uh, and this is becoming a big topic in the EU again because uh, electric cars make no noise and they have to be given noise so people can hear them. And what would that noise be? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting discussion. But uh, this designer also designed the sound experience you have inside your car, which is also kind of interesting. And he, the fascinating thing reading this post is a lot of these are a bit older, was that um, for the most part, these sounds were somewhat chanced upon. They weren't necessarily massively thought over, uh, which is probably how I'd assume it might happen now. They were Because it was a nascent industry, people just sort of made it up as they went along and experimented and just happened to hit upon things that worked. And there's plenty of examples in this post of ones that didn't work, like uh, certain word versions of Windows. <laughs> Trying to say certain versions of Windows comes out slightly hard to say, what it did the first time I said it, and that didn't work so well and have long since died. So not every sound is successful. I always wonder why Apple got rid of the Mac startup sound. I'm not sure. It also covers the camera sound used on lots of smartphones, which is an interesting one. If you forget that a lot of people now have absolutely no idea how a camera should sound. They haven't used a manual shutter camera in a very long time. And yet camera phones emulate that sound. And I would imagine that a lot of younger people probably wonder what that sound even is. Uh, and someone actually designed that sound. And it comes from a 1970s Canon AE-1, which is kind of fascinating. <laughs> So if sort of audio design and user experience design from different perspective interests you, then go along and have a read of this post. Another deep dive story for you, a story from Parametric Press by Omar Shahita. This is from May, actually. Unraveling the JPEG. This is going into a lot of detail about the algorithms behind the, the JPEG compression. I studied this a little bit at university when JPEG was relatively new, actually. So I found this a nice revisit back to some of that knowledge that we learnt. And some of it I remembered. Um, and the interesting thing I find about compression algorithms or even actually computer graphics generally is that when you, it's like a matrix moment. When you realize that computer graphics are all just comprised of numerical values, you suddenly realize in theory how easy it is to manipulate them because you just have to do a lot of math or maths, depending on the side of the Atlantic you live on. And it is a bit of a matrix moment. You suddenly realize, ah, this is how blur works. This is how averaging works. This is how edge detection works. You just look for differences in number values. And this post is a great post. Not only does it go into good detail, it also has interactive examples you can play with to see the effects of manipulating the values directly in something like a hex editor. It's quite a long post. Uh, I urge you to look at it uh, on a computer or a, a tablet so you can actually play with the examples as well. It's well worth and I had not heard of this publication before, and I will certainly be subscribing to it now because they have some wonderful posts like this. Another little background story. This is not a new item at all. This is from the Digital Antiquarian from 14th of November, 2013, actually. This is the history of the making of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy computer game, the original computer game, the text adventure one. 
I was reading this because uh, I've been on holiday the past couple of weeks and I've been visiting a lot of uh, bookmarks I've had for some time. And one of these was an interactive history archive. Um, and Hitchhikers was a, a book, a franchise I'm a big fan of. And I was just fascinated to read this history. Um, it's also very early days of computer games generally, not just the genre. So it's interesting to hear how games were made in those days. Uh, a lot of people flying backwards and forwards. Uh, and a lot of inefficiencies um, and a lot of just firsts, I suppose. Douglas Adams, the creator and writer of many of the Hitchhiker stories, was also infamously not very productive and very easy to distract. And in the year this game was supposed to come out, he was supposed to be working on a book and all sorts of things. And he tried to be too involved with the game. And even though he got on with the uh, programmer of the game, he wasn't really a programmer, he'd get distracted very easily, and et cetera, et cetera. It's a fascinating little tale, whether the game means anything to you or not. Uh, if you're interested in the history of games and how games used to be developed with like a handful of people, literally, then go and have a read. Finally, before I give you a little announcement, or a, I suppose a news item, an article from uh, Julia Carrie Wong from The Guardian. We all suffer why San Francisco techies hate the city they transformed. This is an interesting post in that I think people will be very uh, polarised on this about whether they should actually feel sympathetic for techies who transformed a city mostly for the worst or not. I think the, the thing that struck me the most, I think what struck me the most in this article was actually the lack of action on the part of the city. The city knows this is a problem. I guess they get a lot of money from the tech industry. But I would have expected them to maybe stand up a bit more to some of the demands. Like there's lots of demands from people, um, techies or non-techies, to change certain things. And the, and the city government seems to do very little. Um, I guess they're getting a lot of taxes a lot more, are they? Knowing somehow, sometimes how the tax industry can work in this sector. And the craziness of how even well-paid people now find living in this city near impossible of course, uh, the problem persists. One of the things that has happened in many times in history is if you try to move a problem on, it doesn't necessarily get rid of the problem. It just moves the problem. And as a lot of tech professionals are now moving to other cities, that problem is spreading to other cities, not even just in America. So what do we do about this fundamental problem in the first place? This is an interesting one. I, I've been spending some days, Austin more holidays, working on a book that is targeted specifically at programmers and encouraging to step up a bit more about caring about the industry and the world that the industry is in. Um, so I'm thinking about some solutions, but I guess it's all very grassroots, just making people think some more than necessarily having any concrete solutions because they can vary. Yeah, I was in two minds about this article, but the thoughts it throws up in my mind are, I think, worth pursuing and worth um, thinking about some more. So I recommend you have a read, and I'd love to hear your comments and thoughts on this. You can find details of how to do that on christianchiller.com slash podcasts. And finally, a project that I think I have mentioned a couple of times in the past, Veil, a great a natural language linter um, that I use a lot in my technical language to check text against style guides for grammar and for spelling and all sorts of other things. Up until now, it was a command line tool that was reasonably easy to install and configure, but meant that it wasn't really possible to use it with things like Word, Google Docs, etc. Sort of more user-friendly 
writing applications and then just text editors and command line. The creator, Joseph Cato, a fascinating guy who is just so productive and gets so much done. And I'd love to meet him one day. I nearly did, nearly did, <laughs> but not quite yet. Um, has released Veil Server, which is a desktop application that runs on all desktop operating systems um, that runs Veil more as a background process, not like a Zoom background process, I hope, that enables then other applications to connect to it. Um, these are things like Word, Google Docs, etc. I have been testing the beta. I didn't get as much testing done as I would have hoped. And now he has released version one, which will be a one-off fee of $40, which I think is worth it. The guy is amazingly productive and does some really good work and is very responsive to everyone's needs. So even if you're just paying that $40 to continue supporting the open source project and you never use Veil Server, you should do it because um, it's great. And I hope that soon, I think the Google Chrome plugin is already ready. Um, the Word one and things like that might take a bit longer because it involves different sorts of programming. Uh, it is still at heart an open source project, so you can go ahead and create that yourself, of course. But if any of that made any sense to you or interested you, then go along to Joseph's blog post on Medium and find out some more details. That was my links for the week. Next, I have an interview with a handful of people from IOST, a new blockchain project. I am not going to tell you who they were here. I will hopefully uh, let them introduce themselves throughout the conversation. I think it's easier. Um, this is probably the first time I've done an interview with three people on the line. It got a little messy at times. I tried to edit out the times when no one was entirely sure who should answer, and hopefully it runs fairly smoothly. Um, everyone mostly muted as well, so there wasn't too much noise when people weren't talking. But enjoy. Uh, sure. I, think, I guess start now. Yeah, so I'm Terry, and I'm the co-founder and CTO of IOST. And uh, uh, so I used to be a software engineer uh, in Silicon Valley. I used to work in Microsoft and Uber, and later I moved back to China and started my blockchain. And right now it has been two years, uh, around two years, and we have just uh, we have launched our mainnet for about three months. And right now, so our focus is just growing the ecosystem, and that's why we have all the yeah. So we have Ethic Lab, and we have White Matrix, all these nodes who joined us and help us grow the system. Yeah. Cool. And who else? I'd also be interested in knowing. So we've got three company names or two companies and one foundation. What's kind of the relationships between all three of you? Oh, wait. Uh, I think they haven't introduced themselves. Yeah, no, for sure. Yep. As they introduce themselves. <laughs> okay. So maybe I'll start second. Uh, my name is Wu Xiao, and uh, you can call me Ling because that's my deep name. Deep name. Uh, White Metric is a startup company specialization in blockchain game development, and we have already published several blockchain games. And we help with IOST because we think IOST is very interesting uh, blockchain uh, project, and we also build uh cell evolutions with iOS T version and help more uh, users to know what, what they can play on the blockchain. And we also build the IDE, which will help the developers to write smart contracts more and more efficient, I think. Yeah, that's it. And finally, we have... Okay, so let me continue, right? Uh, okay, so um, I'm Malik C from Attic Lab. I'm a team lead, and uh, we have a team of uh, blockchain developers and enthusiasts uh, here. 
Uh, we already created uh, uh, Exchange, Codex One, uh, MyUS Wallet, uh, and uh, such uh, staking servers as uh, Everstake One. Uh, and, uh, recently, we developed uh, uh, IDE for IUST. That's, that's, that's uh, where our uh, relations start. <laughs> okay. I'd definitely like to come back to the IDE later because that was sort of what interests me the most. But let's start with IRST. Um, firstly, why another blockchain? What, what does IRST do differently? Also bearing in mind that it is a decentralized blockchain. I don't know if that means public or not. I'd be interested to know that. And finally, you claim uh, a next generation consensus algorithm, pr proof of believability, which sounds quite fascinating. So, <laughs> so I'd be interested in knowing those three things. Why another blockchain? Um, is it public or private? And what is this consensus algorithm? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, okay, so we build this because we want to make a blockchain that's scalable, but at the same time, we want to keep the level of center, uh, the, the level of decentralization enough. So we don't want to make a blockchain that can be censored. So we want to make a blockchain that is censorship resistant. So we don't want to be like blockchain can be controlled by a mafia or some of the car cartels, but, but rather we want to make a blockchain that has uh, <clears throat> the decentralization level similar to, you know, uh, to Ethereum and Bitcoin where they have tens of thousands of nodes. Uh, so now our, our consensus POB can support tens of thousands of nodes and we can at the same time support 8,000 uh, transactions per second. So we want to keep the essential core value of blockchain but while we give it to like more mass production by making it more scalable. Uh, and yeah, so POB is really a, decentral, uh, a decentralized consensus where we have, uh, so right now it's rotating 10 minutes for the committee and in each committee, uh, uh, so we have like several seats where we, you reach consensus by, uh, <clears throat> so our very uniquely de designed uh, POB con consensus algorithm. And so the the communication actually pretty low uh, because our low, uh, I mean, lower level optimization. And also we are building on top of uh, Chrome V8. So we, we kind of take a advantage, advantage of the very fast tra tra transpilation of Chrome V8. Uh, so that's actually give us a pretty fast boost on the, uh, the, the virtual machine, uh, the virtual machine system number. Uh, so, and also at the same time, we have been designing uh, some very user-friendly and developer-friendly features, such as the resource system, uh, and also the storage layer, the network layer, which we all have their uh, own, ver own version of the optimizations. Yeah, I think I was still trying to understand the um, the consensus algorithm, though. Like, how does something prove it's believable? What's the what's the stake? What's the the mechanism. Uh, sure, yeah. So every node actually, okay, so every node in the has a contribution or availability score. So it's something combined of your stake and also your contribution score and your contribution score factoring 
the information as uh, so the, the the transactions you have been verified and the transactions uh, and the topology of the network you are in. And all this combined will give you a verifiability score where you can call that a, yeah, a, a survey. Yeah, so, so survey is the term we use. And a very interesting thing is we are encouraging new nodes to join the system. As in the traditional POS system where like if you hoard a lot of the coins and you got more tokens and you'll be having more staking power. So that will just make the richer people richer. But for us, we have a pretty unique clearing mechanism where all the nodes, after they produced, they produced blocks, so their survey scores will be subtracted by a certain number. And by keeping this way, so we're, we'll be having different batches of nodes to verify blocks. And so that will achieve having each node do have the equal opportunity to be participated in the block producing. So we want like the newly joined nodes and every node can be yeah, participating in this block rewarding uh, chances. And yeah, so we just want to give the opportunity to other nodes. Okay. Um, and so just to clarify, it's as far as I can tell, it's sort of semi-public. Like it's a public blockchain, but not anyone can be a node. You have to sort of apply to be a node as far as I can understand. Uh, so right now it's actually kind of, yeah, it's, so it's kind of like that, but the barrier to become an, a node is really, really low. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So basically you can stake a certain amount of token by, re, I mean, by passing this minimum re- requirements, then you can become a node. Okay. Um, and how does the whole token economy fit into things? What are the tokens used for? That's your, that's your stake in the believability consensus or is there more to it? Yeah, so yeah, so that's one factor you consider in your service work, right? And also, it's a measurement of, uh, <clears throat> to also use this to measure your your contribution in the system, mm. and so it's kind of like the feel for the whole network to flow. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's let's go up the the, the stack a little bit then. Um, you do already have a few D apps and, and wallets running on the network. Um, I'm just trying to, so uh, my first question is how do people build the D apps? Is it, is there their own, do you have your own, um, scripting language or do they use conventional programming languages? How do people build these D apps? Yeah. So right now they can use JavaScript okay. or native Golan to build, uh, the apps. And right now it's actually, I mean, we choose JavaScript simply because, at the time, we find what are the most popular languages in the world. And if we search on GitHub, I think JavaScript has the most number of repos. And that's why we picked JavaScript. We, we just want to, I mean, we, we want to reinvent a new language. Mm-hmm. We just want to use the language where people are most comfortable with. And this can lower the barrier for developers to, to enter this world. Uh, yeah, so basically, writing a DApp is as simple as writing your old-fashioned uh, JavaScript. Okay. One of you on the call, I, I can't quite remember who mentioned about uh, iOS for gaming. So is that something that is still in development? Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I guess they're going to be JavaScript games as well. But what's the the interest on in the gaming side? Oh, uh, there are many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah, 
I, I think Xiao can comment on this because he's a pretty pro uh, gaming developer. Oh, oh, thanks. Yeah, we focus on dev dev games because the smart contract can contribute on some social uh, game core core games. Uh, for example, in one of my game called Cell Evolutions, in this game, normally you uh the developers will think on how to build some puzzles and build some strategies, make make the uh, players think that is interesting. But on the blockchain, you can first let them to get their own cells and make them great. And finally, when the cell dies, they can upload their data on the blockchain. And on the blockchain side, you have the smart contract and you can deal with the socialized game call. Uh, for gameplay, for example, uh, if some team want to build a human world and some others want to build uh, a spiritual world, then they may have a fight, they may cause wars. In the normal games, uh, we, we can see that uh, if there's a centralized server and uh, the game company can control everything. But now, code is the law. I mean, everything is on the smart contract and it is really a normalized team, team up and fight. That is much more interesting than the normal games. That, that's from my understanding. And iOS is very it's a very fast blockchain and it can support many games. I think I also have already published several interesting blockchain games, including my, my work, yeah. And also there are some uh, IOST games which is have very, very good traffic because we, we see on the depth reviews, IOST have already published several games that have many more, uh, much more users than other blockchain, yeah. Yeah, so, so right now, I mean, you can find us on Diap Radar, Diap Review, and all these major uh, Diap stores in the world, I think. Uh, so last, I mean, last time when I checked Diap Review, I think last week, I mean, Diap, Diap Radar. So uh, uh, among the top 10 games for all blockchains, uh, we have two games in the top 10 list by the number of users and number of tra transactions. Yeah, I, I can see, I'm guessing, um, Endless Game, is that one of them? Or, uh, I uh, yes, I think endless game and LC play or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. So and just just out of interest, this, and this transitions nicely to the IDE uh, feature. Um, how how does a, a JavaScript developer or a GoLang developer use the features of of iOS then? Um, do you have an SDK or do you just make calls to the blockchain? How, how do they build those functionalities into their application? Yeah, because we, we build an online ID. That, that means that for normal developers, they need to uh, NPM run some, uh, NPM install some SDKs and okay. build, yep. uh, build smart contract locally. But that is much more, I mean, very hard to get onto the blockchain because uh, on the blockchain, you, you need some environment settings and you need to initialize some some uh, nodes before you write the smart contract. And for our, we, we have the uh, online blockchain, uh, online ID. That means when you click into the website and you can compile and you can do the deploy and you can test with the blockchain with just one click, that is much more efficient for all the developers, I mean. Mm -hmm. Okay. So NPM modules, and I guess if they're using Go, I can't remember what Go's dependencies are, but uh, I can't remember. But yeah, so, something similar. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, so they all have some dependencies. And like for us, so we have the SDKs in all these languages. So we have JavaScript, Java, uh, Python, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Ruby, and all, yeah, so all these main So basically, you can, yeah, so you can just simply uh, by using like a one line of uh, command line, I mean, a one line command to download all the dependencies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just, I'm interested, whilst I was digging around your documentation, uh, before I did notice that so you have you've certainly taken little bits of inspiration from what's come before. Um, in most cases, um, Ethereum, which which makes sense. So you have um, the IRC twenty, the IRC seven two one token, for example. Yeah. I mean, were they inspired by the ERC equivalents, or are they completely different? And you just or, okay. yeah, well, they inspired mostly. Yeah. So we okay. So it's. It's actually quite interesting because we, I mean, when naming the standards, we just don't know like what to name them. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know why, like, yeah, 21 and 721, they have becoming the standard and yeah, blockchain, they, they are following this. So we just are following the convention. Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so the 721 is a non-functional token and, uh, uh, 21 is opposite, so they have similar, uh, yeah, so uh, the interface with the Ethereum equivalents. But just to understand that, so whilst you you can you write your application code in JavaScript or whatever, but you also still create um, a smart contract as well, uh, and that is. Is that in your own language or is it in a JavaScript language? Or I'm just trying to understand why, what you would create a token with and why. I'm just trying to understand if you define token standards, um, where do you write those tokens? Okay, so token standards is just another system contract. And I mean, all the standards are system contracts. So if you want to define your token standards, you just simply write another smart contract. And if you want to use the contract, if you want to create a new token, some then you just send a transaction to this uh, smart contract, and then you have your token created. So it's actually pretty simple. So not like Ethereum, where if you create your token, you have to create a new contract. But for IOST, you actually just send one transaction. Okay. Okay. So I need to create. Um, I need to create a token. So I still need to create a smart contract that defines a token, but creating the token, I can do any way I want. If you want to create a token, you just will send one yep. transaction to the smart an, contract. An, an instance of a token. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's move on to the the IDE. Uh, this interests me the most because um, I've been sort of experimenting a lot with how to teach people smart contract concepts and having interactive web tools is always quite useful. Um, firstly, just to, to understand the difference on your website, you list two, you list Everstake and chain ID. So what's the difference between those two? Uh, okay. Th- maybe, maybe I can uh, tell about our idea. Uh, so, and then we can, uh, uh, get uh, all the differences from them. So uh, uh, there are much more uh, common parts than differences, I think. Uh, yes. So so when we tried to do our IDA, 
for, for iOS. So we, um, we tried to do it uh, as convenient as possible. So the, first of all, we looked at Remix and the flying ideas uh, such as uh, uh, JetBrains products. Uh, so the, the futures are simple. We need to connect to, to iWallet to talk with IST node. Uh, we implemented uh, auto-completion and uh, overall need need editor with uh, highlighting, uh, auto-save for all the codes, auto-compilation, uh, but uh, you you have ability to compile compile manually. Uh, we we did a convenient tab and uh, contract management. Uh, uh, logging of all the events and uh, of course uh, with idea you can compile and deploy uh, contracts to the chosen network and uh, as in a remix you can call uh, all contract functions so that, that's that's uh, pretty simple there are a lot, a lot of work uh, in um, future so there there are no uh, debugger yet and uh, we need to add some features like uh, drag and drop, but uh, um, you already can uh, create smart contracts, deploy them, and uh, test it manually. So you're basically emulating that um, relationship between something like MetaMask and Remix here by having direct access to the wallet, um, that defines my connection to the blockchain. I then uh, write my code in um, in the IDE, and it can be deployed straight away to a, a live contract. Uh, sorry, a live network, a test network, etc. And it's just ready to go. Yeah, it's 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 not uh, uh, just emulating this. Uh, sorry, I, when I say emulating, I mean it's the same yeah. process. Not 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 yeah. yeah. Same process. Yeah. The same. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, okay. Maybe my turn. <laughs> yeah, please, please, um, please. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, for ID, we have the basic concept are same. We want, we want to be swift. Mm-hmm. We want to be simple and smart. For normal developers, can build their apps with just one click. And I mean, they, they should know JavaScript, but they do not need to handle the environment and the initial mm-hmm. settings. That is really boring for them. And for for me, and I think we have, we have similar uh, features such as uh, compile, deploy, and a test on the on the blockchain and we have some imaging and you can, you can download the files whenever you want. Uh, but, uh, on the other side, I think we have more features, more ambitious features because we also connect to, uh, Ethereum's and also we are the first ID which connect into Libra's uh, new language yeah. move. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure if Terry, yeah, I'm not sure if Terry know that we just published the news today and in the future we can bring we can do the bridge between Move and IOST. We believe okay. that will bring more and more de- developers from the the permissioned uh, blockchain into the public blockchain. I mean, IOST is the public blockchain. Mm-hmm. And in the future, maybe we have something like a project uh, project one, right? The in the games, there are different different blockchains and there are different games, and we should have some bridge between each blockchain that will make this the whole decentralized world into the network. I mean, for now, we just see each blockchain, they are single, they are, they are single island, they are, they are not connected. But as, 
I think in our blockchain, we will do the bridging and we can help all the developers to doing some dev games which can connect into each blockchain. I think that will make the story very different from uh, each other. I, I mean, I mean, we, we both do the blockchain uh, IDEs, but we focus on different uh, uh, directions. That 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 will make the ID more interesting. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And how how long have both of these existed as projects? Uh, uh for us, we just two weeks. I think. Oh right. Okay. And we have yeah, we have already compiled forty thousand smart contracts. Okay. On the iOS T. Uh, yeah. And one thousand on the Ethereum, and we just published move today. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And for Everstake, how long has that existed? Uh, the idea was launched uh, maybe w- one week ago. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're both very yeah. very new. Okay, yeah, on similar time, and yeah, so we're pretty new. Yeah. Will um, the Everstake idea? Yeah, will the Everstake IDE only ever be for IOST? Uh, uh, for now, for now, yes, uh, because it's an online IDE. It, 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 there is a possibility to to uh, adopt uh, this IDE for another blockchain, mm-hmm. but uh, we, are, we are looking for another project, uh, but uh, in the form of a plugin. Uh, the plugin yep. in the yep. Uh, existed idea like uh, we scold uh, to yep. implement. Yeah, for sure. Okay, <clears throat> so let's um, let's wrap up with uh, covering. Go back to the sort of IOST project as a whole. Um, I'm guessing the project is still quite new. Um, but what's the plan for the next six months? What's next on the roadmap? Uh, sure. So. Two main things. So we are trying to get more uh, developers. So IOST is, so we're actually using developer first mindset. So we first want to serve every, I mean, all the developers, and then we serve all the users. As long as we have the good developers to to work for, I mean, uh, the applications out, then we can have the users. So we want to attract as many developers as we can Mm -hmm. first, and then to attract as many as users. And in, in the next half of year, uh, we'll be launching a super DApp. Uh, so that's actually a short video DApp. And right now, it's actually have already got a very huge, I mean, large user base in Latin America. It's, it's called Berm. And uh, Berm will be, I mean, coming to everyone's site very, very soon. And we'll be having like many promotions about that too. So that's actually one thing pretty interesting. So the super DApp, I mean, Burma LST. And we also got a gaming platform called Unblock. Mm-hmm. So that's also one of the uh, main focus for LST in the next ha- half of the year. So Unblock is actually just make you play the DApp pretty simply. You don't need to understand what is blockchain. You don't need to ma- manage all the different sort of resources. And Unblock is doing that for you. So you just, yeah, so, so yeah, so Perm and Unblock and I mean the acquisitions for uh, developers and u- users, these are the, the focus for, for us. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, final question, is there anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure people know? Uh, from my side, I, I think it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to. Uh, I think there's one question about IOST. Uh, the very first question: Why we need a new new blockchain? I think it is very interesting because in the blockchain world, there are many block blockchains such as Ethereum, Tron, and some other blockchain. But I think this it is very good to be diversified. I mean, IOST is very innovative and try on the JavaScript uh, version. JavaScript is very you, it's very easy to understand for all the developers. I mean, different blockchain may try different directions, but it is really good to diversify and have competitions between each other because this will lead our blockchain technology to be more and more firm. And I think that's a that's a point why IOST need to be more and more good because it is kind of diversified. Every blockchain have the trade-off on efficiency, security, and decentralized. And I think uh, IOST just balance the best situation for, from all of them. Yeah. And that was my interview with some of the team from IOST. I will have an article uh, delving more into the technical side on that very soon. That was the weekly squeak for another week. Hope you enjoyed it. You could find previous show notes and more information at christianchillercom slash podcasts. The Enthusiastic Amateur should be live soon. I'm just waiting for approval on the episodes from the interviewees. You could also now listen to all previous podcast episodes straight on my page. If you don't really know where to subscribe to the podcast, you can actually just listen to the episodes on my website as well. If you want to be on the Enthusiastic Amateur, go to that same page and uh, fill in a form and let me know. You can also reach out to me at Chris Chinch on Twitter and find a myriad of other ways to contact me at christianchiller.com. So in the meantime, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.